Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 20, as I read during our time of offering. What a challenging passage of Scripture to stand before you and preach this morning. It is uh, probably the most sacred. Uh, each of the four Gospels gives us this. It's probably the most sacred of our sacred Scriptures to preach and to read and to consider. It's intense. The, the gravity of the subject matter that we're preaching through this morning is so intense. You know, we reference this kind of Scripture almost every Sunday in every Sunday school class for sure. We're on the cross of Christ. We're referencing the cross of Jesus Christ. But this morning, we're not merely referring to it. This morning, we're walking through it verse by verse, line by line, word by word. And so it is a heavy text and the way in which I preach it needs to match the scripture that was inspired. This is not a morning to tell jokes in the pulpit. Our songs have even reflected what we're going to look at this morning. We've sung of the kingship of Jesus Christ. Two of our songs, he's the king. And we're going to see that evident throughout this passage of scripture. But he also was a substitute who paid a horrific price for us. And so we sing songs like, it's amazing love. How can it be that you would die for me? What a heavy passage of scripture this morning, but it doesn't lack energy and it doesn't lack hope. We come here this morning with great hope. We prayed in the back this morning for hopeless people in the world. And we're going to preach a heavy passage of scripture that if you read it in and of itself, you might say there's no hope in this, but it is where we as Christians find our hope. We find our hope in a cross with a perfect man hanging on it and dying. We find hope in that because on the Sunday after that, there's a resurrection. And we had to go through this cross of Christ to get to the resurrection of Christ. So I do stand before you this morning and I say, I am going to preach the most hopeful sermon you've ever heard while we talk about the most heavy topic you've ever cast your mind and heart upon. We cannot treat this passage lightly. We can't come to this trivially. It's not something to casually read. I'm astonished every time I read these four gospels and this passage of scripture and this account, account of human history. I'm astonished every time I read it and we do not need to become calloused towards it and desensitized to it. This is, as we will look, the central point in human history where our sins against the God who made us are atoned for once and for all, and that's why there's hope in this message. But we stand on lofty ground this morning as we preach through this cross of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I've got several things to look at this morning. Number one, I want to see that we've got a man that's going to come out in history here that's going to take up his cross and follow Jesus Christ. His name is Simon of Cyrene. Yes, we're going to look also next at the suffering Savior that we call Jesus Christ. We're going to see some irony that is found in the crucifixion of our Christ, number three. Number four, we're going to see that our Christ was forsaken by God the Father, and Jesus cries out to him, why have you done this to me? And then lastly, we're going to look at the death of Jesus Christ. 
In one sense, this is part one of a two-part sermon series. I will preach the next part next week as we look further into what happened immediately upon Jesus' death. But for this morning's sake, we're going to go 20 through 37, and we're going to see where Jesus gave his last breath. That's where we will end. Pick up with me in verse 20. That last sentence, they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. There's no way Simon of Cyrene could have expected what he was going to do that day when he walked into Jerusalem. He's from Cyrene, that's in northern Africa. Today we would call this area the Tripoli region of northern Africa. He is a Jew that has been dispersed. Many Jews were dispersed throughout the Middle East, and some even crossed the Mediterranean into Africa and other places. He's coming back to Jerusalem for an annual pilgrimage to celebrate the Passover feast. That's why he's coming to Jerusalem, and he had no idea that he would celebrate the Passover in the manner in which he is now called into action. He was thrust into posterity by being at the, at the right place at the right time. What an honor it is for Simon to bear the crossbeam that Jesus Christ was carrying and that he would die upon. He is the first man in the history of humanity to literally pick up his cross and follow Jesus. He did it physically, and I think that he did it spiritually as well. Quick aside, his sons are named Alexander and Rufus. Why would Mark name them? We believe that Mark wrote this gospel to Roman Christians. Well, if you look at Romans chapter 16, the apostle Paul wrote to the Roman Christians as well. And we have a Rufus in Romans chapter 16, and it is very much believed that this is Simon's son. And as he came to this Passover and watched his dad carry the cross of Christ. Perhaps it solidified him in his faith and trust and belief in that Savior. And he is a well-known Christian in the Roman church. And thus, Mark cites him and Paul refers to him in his epistle. Number two, that's number one. Simon takes up his cross and follows Jesus. Number two, let's look at the suffering Savior. You know, it's interesting to note what the gospel accounts of Jesus' crucifixion detail. If you look at all four gospels, you really don't get a nice breakdown of nails and spikes and, and blood and agony. You don't get all of that. There's no focus on the physical crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Yeah, there's reference to a spear stuck in his side, but it's after he's dead. We're not told how big the spikes are or how long they are. We can imagine that because we understand Roman crucifixion, but the Scriptures don't give us any detail of that. It's an interesting to note what the Scriptures do focus on. They focus on the suffering emotionally of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I want you to just consider how subtle Mark is about the physical crucifixion. Look in verse 20, and they led him out to crucify him. That's real subtle, just blunt statement of fact, but there's no details beyond that. 
Verse 24, and they crucified him. Verse 25, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. This is the only reference we get to the physical aspect of crucifying our Savior, Jesus Christ. And yet the text that we're, we have before us unpacks all kinds of emotional torment and suffering that is inflicted upon Jesus. Nothing physical, but emotional The focus is not on the physical because it was very common for men and women, but men to be crucified. Tens of thousands of people had been crucified over the centuries. And many men had suffered the physical anguish of the cross. It's very common. But what is uncommon, what is uncommon in this crucifixion is twofold. Number one, it is the unjust crucifixion of a perfect man. That's never been done in the history of crucifixion. This is the crucifixion unjustly of a perfect, sinless human being. And number two, it's the fact that this is the crucifixion of not just some mere man, but this is the crucifixion of Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh, So we have a perfect, innocent man, and we have a holy and righteous God that's being crucified. It's never been done before now, and it's never been done since. The gospel writers were inspired to focus on the mental and emotional suffering and anguish of Jesus Christ. I lifted out of here seven examples of such. I want you to follow along with me. First of all, look in verse 22. We're going to see here that Jesus was crucified in a disgraceful place. It says, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. We also know this place to be called Calvary. Calvary is Latin for the, for the meaning scalp or bald head. And so we know that Golgotha and Calvary is a place of disgrace. And that's where Jesus Christ was led to be crucified, though he was sinless. Number two, look in verse 24 and 27. Jesus was brutally punished as a criminal. Verse 24, and they crucified him. Verse 27, and they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. So Jesus Christ, perfect and sinless, gets punished as a criminal. They're called robbers in the text. A better translation would be insurrectionists. They flank him on the right and the left. You remember James and John wanting to be in Jesus' right and left? Mm. This is a brutal punishment that is reserved only for criminals. Galatians 3.13 reads this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged upon a tree. It was the worst way a human being could die In the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy says, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. And that's right where Jesus Christ hung. Philippians 2.8 says, in being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, comma, even death on a cross, because it was a despicable way to die. 
1 Corinthians 1, 23, Paul tells us that the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. There's no way the Messiah could die on a tree, on a cross. No way. But that is how Jesus Christ died for us. The emotional baggage that he had to endure to die so shamefully on a tree when all of these scriptures speak to the shame associated with it took its toll on our Savior. Third, we see that they insulted him by gambling for his clothes. Look in verse 24. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Straight up fulfillment of Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. By the way, Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Isaiah 53, all kinds of prophecies in those texts happen right here in the text that Mark was inspired to give us. So they gambled for the Savior's clothes. Number four, they insulted him with sarcasm. They put an inscription over his head that said, the king of the Jews, right there in verse 26. It was a mocking tribute to one who claimed to be king. Number five, he was railed at falsely and accused by bystanders that walked by. Just look at this in verse 29 and 30. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. Straight out of Psalm 22 and 69. They wagged their heads at him. That was a Jewish shine of scoff and shame and scorn. They did this as a parade passing by his cross, observing what they thought was a fraud hanging on a despicable tree. Number six, he was taunted by the chief priests in 31 and 32, we read. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Again, Psalm 22 and 69 happening right here. And then lastly, as if it wasn't enough, in verse 32, he is reviled by the insurrectionists that are hanging on either side of him. Look at this. That says, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. We don't get any language about spikes, blood, splinters, hoisting him up. We don't get any of that. We get mocking and scorn, and we get the emotional shame that was afflicted upon our Savior, Jesus Christ. Why? Because many men died with spikes nailed through him, but no man died without having committed any crime or sin. I want you to just stop and consider for a moment what's going on here. This was God experiencing all of this at the hands of the man that he made in his own image and likeness. I want you to imagine the men that did this to Jesus Christ. They have no idea what they are doing. They are doing this to God, not just some human. 
What a moment in history. And this is not fable. This is history that happened and that is recorded for posterity. Let's look at our third point this morning. Let's look at the irony of the cross of Christ, the irony of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. There was immense irony at the cross that day. They were all so blind with sin and hatred that they had no idea of the truths that they were proclaiming to this one hanging on the cross. They had no idea of the truth that they were saying and that was happening before their very eyes. What they intended as insult and conviction and justification for what they were doing was actually truth. (laughs) Wow, it is so ironic. What they accused him of was actually who he was and what he was doing the very moment that he was hanging on that cursed tree. There's three extremely ironic facets to the cross of Christ that I see in Mark chapter 15. Here they are. First one is found in verse 26. We're going to comb back through now and mine these verses for some more worship. Verse 26, then the inscription of the charge against him read, quote, the king of the Jews. This was a Roman statement of sarcasm and warning. It is Pilate that put that sign on the cross of Jesus Christ. The Sanhedrin didn't, the chief priests didn't, the Jews didn't. Pilate himself labeled, put on the billboard over Jesus' head, the king of the Jews. It was first a warning to all the people that were wandering by and looking upon this scene. It was a warning. If you dare walk down the path that this man did, if you dare utter the claims that this man claimed, this will happen to you. There was a warning from Pilate. You people need to settle down and stand corrected. This man is the example. We'll warn you to not tread on the ground that he tread on, trod on. But secondly, it was also an insult. It was insult in two ways. This Pontius Pilate threw insults at Jesus Christ and mocked him with the title, the King of the Jews, because he and Jesus had a dialogue about this title. Remember, he asked Jesus, are you the King of the Jews? And Jesus' reply was, you have said as much. You might want to consider that. So he mocks Jesus by putting that title over his head. But Pilate is also an equal opportunity mocker. Because he's mocking the Jews by saying, here is the king of the Jews as well. He knew that this would get the angst of the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This agitated them greatly. So my second consideration of this inscription, first, it was a Roman statement of sarcasm and warning. But secondly, it was a very contested statement by the Jews. They hated what Pilate put over Jesus' head. Just listen to John 19, 19 through 22. This is John's version of what we read in Mark. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. 
And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, I have written what I have written. Pilate put on the cross in three languages the title of Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews. There's some irony in this because, number one, he is. (laughs) Number two, he wrote it in three languages, Aramaic, Greek, and Latin, so that the whole world could read it and understand it. It was a proclamation, ironically, of truth to the world. Not just to the Jews, not just to the Romans. The chief priests and the Jews protested the inscription. They wanted precision. They wanted it to read, this man said he was the king of the Jews. We don't want him to be labeled as the king of the Jews. Somebody might actually believe that. No, this man said. And that is, in fact, the charge that they leveled against him. It was a charge of blasphemy for claiming to be the Messiah, the King of Israel. Pilate rejects them. Uh, A better translation, the, the text says, what I have written, I have written. A true, authentic translation, which is a little kooky for us to read, goes like this. What I have written will always remain written. Wow. That is absolute Pilate, ironically, is defending the truth of what he wrote, and he says, this will remain forever. And here, 2,000 years later, we are reading what was written, and it has remained. Jesus Christ is the King of the Jews. The third uh, irony, uh, or the third statement of truth that comes out of this King of the Jews title is that Jesus has always been referred to as the King of the Jews. If you walk through, and we'll look at this perhaps in the month of December, when Jesus was born and the Magi came, they came to worship at the feet of the king. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, his triumphal entry, as they cried out, Hosanna, they said, Hail to the king. When Jesus was in trial before Pilate and Herod, the conversation centered around whether or not he was the king of the Jews. In Mark chapter 15, as we prepared this week, Alan and I looked at this and studied this passage on Tuesday morning. In Mark chapter 15 alone, Jesus is called the King of the Jews, King of Israel, six times in this one chapter. That is the central theme. And that is why we sang so much this morning about the kingship of Jesus Christ. We sang in in consistency with the Scriptures. In God's plan... You need to understand that Jesus can only be the king of the Jews if he dies for his people. Also in John eleven forty nine, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. 
He did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. It was written in three languages for those that were scattered abroad. He's the king. And this one man had to die for the nation so that the whole nation wouldn't die. And not only the whole nation, but even the Gentiles that populated the world. It's ironic that the title of king of the Jews that Jesus was mocked with was absolutely true and absolutely the point of him hanging on the cross. And yet these people had no idea. There's a second point of irony. That was three points related to the ironic title, King of the Jews. There's a second point of irony. It's found in verses 29 and 30. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. Those who passed by were repeating the false accusation that was given to Pilate. If you remember back in Mark fourteen fifty seven, some stood up and bore fault witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Well, that's not a right quote of what Jesus said. What Jesus really said is found in John two nineteen: Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it, raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? And then John tells us in verse 21, But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So ironically, these passers-by, wagging their heads at him, saying, Aha, have no understanding that Jesus is the temple of God, and he is being destroyed, and in three days he will be raised from the dead. It's literally happening before their eyes as they mock him as a helpless one who is dying a brutal death. And then the third irony in verse 31 and 32. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. He saved others, absolutely. But only to live a little while longer before they died again. Have you ever thought about that? Think about that for a moment. Yes, Jesus Christ saved some from blindness, deafness, lameness, muteness, demon possession. Bloody discharges were healed. Lazarus was raised from the dead only to die again. <laughs> Do you understand that? Lazarus' biggest issue was not resurrection that day from the physical death that he experienced. His biggest issue was resurrection from the spiritual death that he experienced by sinning against the holy God. 
The blind people, the deaf people, the demon-possessed people, yes, they were freed momentarily, but it was only immediate and physical. There was an eternal life that was needed. And so Jesus Christ here is able to save, yes, but he's able to save only in that he doesn't save himself, and he dies on this Christ, on this cross. If he would have come off that cross... All people would have been lost. And yet, ironically, these chief priests are saying he saved others, but he cannot save himself. If he would have come off that cross, there would have been no substitution for us. If he would have come off that cross, we would have had to pay the price ourselves for our sins. And Christ would not be our king. He had to stay right where they nailed him, and he had to die. Let's look at our fourth point this morning, and that's that we see that Jesus was forsaken by the Father. The anguish that Jesus experienced from the mocking of these people was very very intense. But it only gets worse when he casts his glance towards God the Father. In verse 33, we read, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's worse than anything any human being could do to Jesus. It's to be forsaken by the one that he prided in the garden to, who he called Abba, Father. Let's look at the timeline that Mark gives us, noting the hours that are documented in this passage. First, in verse 25, it was the third hour when they crucified him. Jesus was hung on the cross at 9 o'clock in the morning. That's the third hour on the Jewish system of time. From 9 o'clock until noon, the sixth hour, he was tormented and mocked by humanity. During this time, he was also being forsaken by God the Father. And at noon, it says, at the sixth hour, At the sixth hour, the land goes dark. And it was dark for three hours until the ninth hour, which is three o'clock. It was this ninth hour that we will get to in a moment where Jesus breathed his last. There was darkness, verse 33 says. Darkness was a sign of mourning, of anguish, of wrath. I want you to put a note in your Bible. You've got to read this passage with what's going on right here. Amos chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. The prophet Amos writes this, And on a day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the whole earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. 
I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Amos wrote of this moment. There's an only son that is being mourned. His name is Jesus Christ. The mourning and the songs of lamentation are on the tongue and lips of Jesus Christ. God turned the feast into mourning. This is the feast of the Passover on this day. And it became a feast of mourning as darkness enveloped the earth. I want you to know what was going on during this darkness. And I only wish I had a better voice to proclaim it, but you listen to me, please. During this darkness, God himself was pouring upon Jesus Christ our sins. Jesus Christ was being filled up with all the sins of humanity, past, present, and future. That's what was going on. That's why there was darkness. He took on all the sins of the past. Jesus Christ, in this three hours of darkness, paid for the sins of Adam and Eve, who defied God's command and ate of the tree and introduced sin into the world and into all of humanity, including you and me. And Jesus Christ was paying for that, was being filled up with that sin. He paid for the sin of Moses slamming the rock with his staff instead of speaking to it like God told him to. He paid for the sins of David. David having an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, committing murder on Uriah and lying to cover it up. Jesus Christ was paying for those sins. And I could go on. He was paying for the immediate sins in that present moment. Those very people that were wagging their heads at him, those very soldiers that nailed those certain spikes into his hands, he was paying for those sins. Next Sunday, we're going to see a Roman soldier who says, certainly this was the Son of God. I don't know that he believed in a salvific kind of way. But if he did, even though he crucified Jesus Christ, he's in heaven today. And Jesus Christ, during those three hours of darkness, was being filled up with your sins and mine. Our murderous anger, our gossiping lying, our covetousness, our adulterous thoughts and actions, our thieving, our rebellion, our laziness, All of those sins during these three hours of darkness were being poured onto Jesus. And he was paying for every last one of them. Can you imagine? No, you can't. (laughs) I've studied this all week and I can't fully grasp what that must have been like. But I know who I am. And I am a sinner. And I know the sins that I've committed over a lifetime. And I rightly understand that during those three hours of darkness, my sins were being cast upon Jesus Christ, who was without sin. 
so that I might be washed pure and considered blameless by the Father who was forsaking His only Son instead of forsaking me. Do you understand that that is biographically true about you as well? That is your story. Can you fathom the quietness of this darkness? You know, when it goes dark, it's so quiet. Sometimes I walk out at night and it is so quiet. And during this time, it might be quiet externally, but internally inside of Jesus Christ, it is screaming loud. And finally, Jesus breaks the silence. And outwardly, verse 34 says, At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, 1. It's only Jesus that breaks the silence with his Aramaic cry out to God, Why have you forsaken me? What does forsaken mean? Even the words that we have in English don't do it justice. It means to desert, abandon, leave in dire straits, leave helpless, totally abandon. God the Father did that to his one and only Son of whom he was well pleased with at his baptism. While Jesus hung on that cross, the Father had fully forsaken him and abandoned him and left him desolate. And Jesus comprehended it fully. He knew it. It was the most excruciating and agonizing element of the crucifixion. Listen to me. Jesus being forsaken by the Father was the most excruciating and agonizing element facet to his crucifixion. Why? Two reasons. Two reasons. Number one, he was wholly innocent. He did not deserve one ounce of what was being poured into him for three hours of darkness. Not one bit. And secondly, it hurt immensely because he was so close to the Father. He was his only son. He came to earth in obedience. He didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He took the form of human flesh. He kept every command of the Father. His Father, when He was baptized, said, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. He told us over and over again through the Gospels, I did not come of my own accord. I don't speak what I want to speak. I only speak what my Father tells me. I only do what my Father does. My food is to do what, the God, what my Father wills. I mean, He is Father-centric in every aspect of His life. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating, blood, praying to be delivered from this moment, and He calls God the Father, Abba. 
And now he cries out, why have you forsaken me? He's pure and innocent, and he's the only son of God Almighty. And that was excruciating. Why did the father forsake the son? Well, because a holy God cannot have any association whatsoever with even one sin. And all of the sins of humanity, past, present, and future, were being heaped upon Jesus Christ. He was the bearer of sin. And so God the Father, in his infinite holiness, had to back away and forsake him and have nothing to do with this dirty, wretched, defiled substitute for a moment. But you say, Jesus committed no sin and he didn't deserve to be forsaken. And I say to you, that's right. He was being forsaken for us. Uh, I do want you to turn to Isaiah 53 and I want you to get your pens or pencils out. Isaiah 53, we're going to read three verses, four, five, and six. This is very, very critical to us understanding the Father forsaking the Son on the cross. Isaiah wrote 700 years before this happened. 53, starting in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs. And I want you to circle the pronouns, the, the plural pronouns, our and we. And I just want you to see this was not Jesus' sins. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. <clears throat> but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastise that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. We are all in that passage of scripture. We're all over this. That verse is what was going on during the three hours of darkness as Jesus hung on that cross from noon to three. And the scriptures here tell us that he did this for us, and it was in our place that he died. And this is how he paid the ransom to set us free from the wrath of God. And I want you to hear from me this morning that if you believe this, and if you believe in his substitution for you, you will never be forsaken by God, no matter what you've done, because Jesus has paid it all for sure. Let's look at our last point this morning. Let's look at the death of Christ. We'll pick up on this some next week as well. Verse 35 is a strange moment because perhaps Jesus is going to be delivered from death. Here we go. Verse 35. And some of the bystanders hearing it said that they heard him say, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. When they heard that, they said, behold, he's calling Elijah. 
And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. Psalm 69, 21. And they said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. What's going on with this Elijah stuff? <clears throat> well, as we know from Scripture, Second Kings, Elijah was one who never died. He was taken up to heaven in a chariot. And the Jewish people held on to that, that truth from their Old Testament Scriptures. And they believed that there would be a time when Elijah would come and he would take such righteous people away from, a, from dire straits and rescue them so that they might ha not have to experience death like he didn't. And so when Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, it sounds like Eli, Eli, or Eliah. And so they perhaps think that he is calling for Elijah to come rescue him. And so they're watching to see if Elijah might ride back down in this chariot that they know from 2 Kings. Well, that's not going on at all because Jesus is not going to be delivered from the death that had to be experienced. We get to verse 37 and we see that Jesus uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last I want you to know simply to say this morning that Jesus gave up his life. It was not taken from him by man. God took God's life on that cross. John 10, Jesus tells us this in verse 17. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus, when he breathed his last, he did that. Man didn't take his life from him. God struck the Son so that the Son might die so that you and I, through faith, might believe. We'll spend some more time on the actual death of Jesus next week. Let me conclude with this. Jesus says from this cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want you to understand this morning that those words, God forsaking me, those words will be said over every human life that there ever was. Those words are true for every human life that ever was, and here's how it works. And it will be true for you. It's true in one of two ways. Those words will either be uttered on your behalf by Jesus Christ when he said it on this cross, or those words will be uttered by you. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, one day when he comes again and delivers judgment upon the world. The concept, the biblical truth of substitution has got to be understood right here. Jesus said in your place, if you believe in him, Jesus said in your place, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But if you don't believe in him and you die living in that state, 
There will be a day when you will say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's an astonishing truth. And I urge you to believe in Jesus Christ so that he utters those words in your place so that you never have to say them. I want to look at another point. We didn't cover verse 23. Look back there. This is my last point. Verse 23, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. What's that about? Well, that's anesthesia. Wine is a deadening agent, and the myrrh that they would put in it was a narcotic, a mild, light-mannered narcotic. And so the narcotic mixed with wine was to provide anesthesia for those that would suffer on a cross, the most brutal death ever known to mankind. It was customary for wine and myrrh to be offered to victims of crucifixion. It was slightly humane. But Jesus, it says, denied it. Why did he deny it? Well, I think uh, three reasons. One, at the Last Supper, he told the disciples he would never drink of the vine again until there was a marriage feast, a wedding feast, that he would partake of it again with all of his people one day. And I think he held true to that pledge. Number two, I think he needed to be sober-minded because he had things to say while he hung on this cross. There are seven sayings. He had, to, he had to challenge John to take care of his beloved mother, Mary. He had to pray from that cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He could not do this if he was inebriated with an anesthetic. But here's the third reason. Jesus Christ is a true and full substitute had to experience on that cross the full condemnation for sin. In the same way that those who are forsaken by God in all of eternity who don't believe in Jesus Christ, Jesus had to endure the full wrath of God without any mediation. There will be no anesthesia in hell. I like how quiet the room is. There will be no anesthesia in hell. There will be no relief from torment. And Jesus Christ, dying as a substitute for us, bore the full wrath of God without anesthesia, so that we would not have to endure such. But those that don't believe in Jesus Christ and what he did on this cross in their place, they will bear the full wrath of God without relief forever and eternity. That's what's going on here when Jesus denies the wine and the myrrh. Mark nine forty seven. we preached this weeks ago. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. And then listen to verse 48. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's Jesus on hell.
So this morning, I urge you to worship our crucified Christ. He's worthy of worship because we do know that on the third day, he rises again. If we left the scriptures right here, he's not worthy of worship because he's dead. But we do worship him through this death because we know that he rose again on that third day. And I can't wait two Sundays from now, if the Lord wills it, we will celebrate that. So this morning, I urge you to believe in Jesus so that you will never utter the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you do, he will have done that for you. And if you don't, there is still time. And it's a message like this this morning that he is calling you to believe in him so that you will not be forsaken by God who made you. What a great Savior. What a great substitute. What great hope. Is this not a message of hope this morning? (laughs) Heavy, heavy lifting. We looked at some intense truths, but what a sermon full of hope because Jesus paid it all in our place if we would believe in him as our substitute. Father, thank you for carrying us through this time of worship. Father, thank you for carrying us through our fallen humanity and providing a solution for us. Jesus, we praise you for enduring the forsaken state that you lived in for some three hours, six hours total, where God abandoned you, God the Father abandoned you. We thank you, Jesus, for paying the price for all of our sins. I pray that we rightly understand more so this morning how our sins are connected to your cross And in so understanding that, we worship you more truthfully, more authentically, and more unwaveringly. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would seal this truth into our hearts and lead us to sing these truths to our own souls and to lost people that we encounter in this world. There is a dying world that needs this message of hope, this hope that's found in a crucified Jesus, would you send us out as your ambassadors so that the worshipers would build and eternity would be filled with voices singing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.